0: Well today's going to be slightly different we're you We're going to have each of you read your own questions unless you know excepting for the ones that have been sent in to me and the ones that uh, are coming from the MBT forum so you know best how to ask your own questions and how how you want them phrased. so I will just uh call on you and you can you can start with your questions um, I'm gonna start with Oliver because um he's asking questions that have to do with uh, current things going on tom's recent tmi workshops and the and the cultural connection tour when will we be coming to frankfurt so uh, you start oliver
1: okay well actually i have two questions Then so maybe we start with the one on the tmi workshops um, Tom, you've had two workshops at TMI during the last month. Um, have you had any interesting experiences with the groups which might be worth sharing here?
2: Well, I can describe those a little bit. And uh, yeah, there, there were some interesting things, I guess, that uh, maybe worth sharing. Uh, I had one in August and one in November. And these were very experiential um, Programs. It wasn't about me lecturing, it was about, you know, or or me talking to them, it was about them having experiences. It was at TMI, the Monroe Institute, and the Monroe Institute has something like 28, what they call check units, which are basically uh, small beds in a small room with a headset that's uh, wired to uh, a source program. That the, that the staff runs, and I went up on um, uh, the internet and went to a site called Gnarl, G N A U R A L. You might want to say Gunarl because it starts with a G, but uh, I don't think the G is uh, is to be pronounced. So I go to the site Gnarl, which allows you to create binaural beats and I created a set of binaural beats for my own experience for these people to listen to plus we also listened to some of TMI's tapes, um, what they call free flow tapes which is without any voicing, it was just the, the TMI sounds that were used during that tape, they have different focus levels, focus 10, focus 12 Focus, uh, you know, 15, 21, 27, and so on. And uh, Bob typically voiced those tapes, gave them instructions, kind of uh, led them by the hand, you know, told them to relax, do this, do that, go to a certain place, and here's the kind of experiences that you're looking for. And I used those tapes without any voicing on it. Basically, the voice was just taken off, and those were called free-flow tapes. Because you just go there and kind of, go with the flow, whatever, whatever happens. So actually, it was about 50-50, my binaural beat sounds that I created on gnarl and the TMI pre flow sounds. And it was a very intensive course. The students, or the, the people who came, spent about 12 hours a day involved in this course. It was a 12 hours a day for five straight days. So it was 60 hours in a in a week, and that was a lot of immersion. And most of that time, they were lying down with these headsets on. Some of that time, I was talking to them. Uh, the way we would work it is that I would introduce uh, the the goal that we had the next uh, the next day in the evening of the previous day. So I, let's say we, we started out with a goal of uh, point consciousness, just learn to go to point consciousness and stay there. Then we did um, communications. And you could communicate with people who are embodied or not embodied. And then we did, uh, oh, let's see, we did, um, after communications, it may have been uh, remote viewing and healing, and then we did out of body. But I had a series of, of um, themes for each day. So I would talk to them for about three hours on the night before, and then the next day, they would uh, we all got up and had breakfast, and then I would give them a little, oh, 15, 20 minute, half hour uh, talk to get them ready for what was. said. They'd go in their booth, they'd put on their headsets, they'd come out, they'd tell me the kinds of experiences they had. I would uh, coach them, tell them maybe what they meant or what they should try next or maybe what the problem was. So I was their coach. They'd go back in put in the headsets again, try it again. They would come out. Then, uh, you know, we'd do that pretty much all through the day. We'd stop for lunch, and then there'd be a break after lunch, and then there'd be more, more, we call them tapes, but more audio files to listen to, and then we'd start the afternoon sessions. And you know we would talk for half an hour. Then they'd go in and listen and come back and I'd coach. And they'd go listen, come back and I'd coach and so on. So this went on um, for 12 hours each day. And at the end of the day, after the last uh, coaching session, there'd be dinner. And then after dinner, I'd start my three-hour talk to get them prepared for the next day. So there was almost no time to do anything but you know, listen to tapes, listen to me, you know, eat three meals a day, and that just about took up everybody's day. So that's what it was like. It was a very intensive thing. Uh, in both classes, most of the people had major breakthroughs in the sense that they learned something that they just didn't know before there was something critical, some key idea or attitude or way of looking at things or an approach uh, that they just were missing, and it was blocking them. It was getting in the way, and they had an aha moment and realized what the block was. Realized other things that they could do um, that just didn't they didn't consider it before. That that was something that would be effective or something that they could do. So they. Uh, they had some sort of personal breakthrough, most of them. I, don't, I wouldn't say that was everybody, but probably the the uh, great majority of attendees had some kind of a personal breakthrough in their abilities to understand the bigger picture, to uh, uh, experience the larger reality system. So, so that's really what it was about. Uh, one of the questions I asked at the end when we passed out an evaluation form, I asked the question: um, Which of the two sorts of sound files—the TMI free flows or the binaural beats that I had generated—did you find more uh, helpful, more effective in whatever it was you were trying to do? And on the the first group, it was probably about ninety percent said they found the binaural beats more effective than the free flow tapes, and um, there was about 10 percent would be well, I should say there was a, the rest of them said both. They both worked about the same. Uh, in the second group, it was not quite the same, but it was very close. I'd say 75 percent, 70, 75 percent said uh, the binaural beats were more effective for them, and uh, most of the rest said that it was uh, about the same. Either one, they were both really good. And there was one person in the second group who said they preferred the TMI tapes. So that's you know just that was of interest to me. That was kind of an experiment I was doing, and uh, the the uh, whether or not the just a straight binary beat with nothing else going on. It was just a binary beat. There wasn't any pink noise. Well, some of them had some pink noise in the first group. I eliminated all the pink noise in the second group because the first group really didn't care for it that much. Um, the uh, I changed the frequency slightly in the second group, and it didn't seem to make a whole lot of difference. But um, so anyway, the, the binaural beats that you can make in a pretty short amount of time. Going to this this uh, uh, website, or, or there's other websites. And matter of fact, that some I can't remember the name of it, but somebody in the second one pointed out that there was another website where making them was even easier than gnarl. Gnarl, you're going to have to play with it for probably 20 minutes or a half hour before you really figure out what the logic is in in making them. There's not not a set of directions. You go there, and you just start making it, and you have to learn how the site works as you fiddle with it. So it's not uh, a, a real quick learn. There's a little learning curve with it. Not too terrible, and in, in an hour you ought to be able to understand the whole thing pretty well, or less. Uh, the other site was supposed to be easier, but I don't have any personal experience with that, with that site. So just look up binaural beat if you're interested. But the point is that if you're having trouble producing and maintaining a good meditation state, these binaural beats that you can make, um, you know, for free on the internet. Will work about as good as anything else. Uh, the TMI tapes have been uh, sounds that they had; they have been uh, developed over years to optimize their effects and so on. And it's kind of a toss-up whether they're, you know, whether those sounds are any more effective than the binaural beats. So that would be a, you know, one thing that I could share with everybody: that if you do need some help. Don't feel like, uh, you know, you have to spend a lot of money to buy special sounds that would help you in a meditation state. You can make your own, and they will be as effective as most anything else that you can, uh, you know, that you can get hold of. Certainly about the same as, as the TMI sounds. Now, that doesn't mean that a TMI type might do more for you than, than just a binaural beat, because I had all the voicing taking out of it. Because I didn't want to lead the witness. The point of this, uh, this workshop was to teach people to be able to do this on their own. No hand-holding. I did not tell them, for instance, uh, what sort of affirmations or whether or not they had to have one or give them any suggestions. Everybody had to come up with everything on their own so that when they left after that week, they would be able then to go forward on their own and develop the rest of it. So I wanted to minimize the hand-holding, the leading. I didn't want to tell them anything about the kind of experience they might have. I wanted them to have their own experience. So I was very careful to not lead the witnesses. Everybody in both sessions had lots of experiences in the non-physical. So that was uh, that was uniform overall. Uh, so it was, a, it was a good time. It was had by all. Very intensive. Very uh, intensive. Uh, uh, interesting i think now i took audio from the first one the one in august i my talks in the evening were recorded on on audio only and i haven't published that yet i haven't put it up yet i wanted to wait and see what happened in the second group second group i took audio and video So uh, if you figure about three hours talk every evening for five days, that's 15 hours of video that I have uh, of me talking. That's a lot to have to sit down and listen to. Uh, Most of the same things were said because they were the same subjects, and uh, a lot of the questions, of course, would be a little different, but we covered mainly most of the same material. And I will have those published, the, the video, because it's more interesting to have video than just, just audio. So I'll publish the video set, and uh, probably then we'll also uh, put out the audio set uh, afterwards. So they'll be kind of in reverse chronological order. We'll put the video out. So anybody would like to listen to those talks about point consciousness, uh, communication, uh, you know, Remote viewing and healing and other things that other subjects that we talked about and, and the out of body they can go listen to those uh, those tapes when they when they come out uh, they have uh, like you know 15 hours of editing as Justin will tell you is a pretty daunting uh, a daunting task so it's not necessarily going to go out you know immediately it takes a while to edit 15 hours of video and, and Donna's husband Keith. Is the one that does all this editing, so he's got a lot of work there, and he hasn't yet um, started because we haven't yet sent him the video. So the process hasn't yet started. We'll ho- hopefully we'll get the video sent to him uh, this weekend. Um, Pamela usually does that and takes care of all the uh, you know getting it off the different machines and putting storing it in the right places, and she does that, and she's just been so busy she actually hasn't been home for more than about two or three days out of the last you know four weeks her business has kept her traveling and traveling so she's kind of behind in her, in her work but we're gonna get that to Donna and you would probably see it in probably about three months or less Keith is Keith is actually pretty quick he gets he turns around things pretty quickly so I'm thinking about three months you might you might get those. And they'll come out at, what, maybe an hour and a half at a time. You can't just put out something 15 hours long. you know That would uh, be just too much. So we'll probably put it out in like one and a half hour segments is what Keith will do. So that's, that's coming. Uh, let's see. Is there anything else about that that uh, I should talk about? I haven't yet decided whether or not I'm going to do any more of these. People might be interested in that. Um, We'll see. We'll see how the reaction is to the video and uh, how that works. It's it takes a whole week out of my time, and uh, that's that's a lot. There's only twenty eight people who can be involved in it because that's all the beds they have. So it's a it's a small audience and a lot of time. On the other hand, if uh, if the uh, videos that I put up are a lot of showing, then there's the audience larger audience, and then it's, of course, very much worth doing. Uh, The second question will be, if I do it again, will it just be repetitious? Will it be the same thing each time? Well, between August and and November, it was pretty much the, you know, they were very similar. It uh, was a different group of people, so it was a different, you know, experience, but it uh, was similar, and I'm not sure how much value putting up. You know, another 15 hours worth of very similar material, and then another 15 hours worth of very similar material. That would be kind of redundant, and maybe isn't uh, so good. In which case, spending a week of my time um, ministering to just 28 people is not as as effective as spending my time, you know, talking to you know what uh, in the larger audience. You know, 20,000, 100,000 number of hits that YouTube uh, videos get. So those are kind of the things I'm considering. I had a good time. I thought it was a lot of fun. I think a lot of people were helped. I enjoyed it. They enjoyed it. Uh, I just have to yet decide whether it's a it's a good, productive use of, of my time to do it. So I'm not sure yet. I've had a lot of people say, we want you to do more. Um, I'm thinking about that and now i guess i ought to uh let uh justin say something because justin was one of the people who was there justin was in the uh was was part of the audience on the uh first session in august and he spent uh, 12 hours a day and and this intensive thing and so justin you have any comments what was it like what was it like to be there
3: well uh, greg was there too uh and
2: oh yes that's right greg was there too
3: the first comment I would make is I I've, I really hope you do uh, fit some in in the future, um, even once a year I think would be would be amazing because it was such a good experience for me. It took, you know, probably three years of struggle trying to interact in the non physical, and resolve the issue that I was uh, having that whole time just in that one week. Uh, so it was pretty pretty uh, well life changing just based on that, and then of course you know the group of people that you uh, get to interact with is a huge deal. Uh, but I think that, and I'd been to one other TMI uh, week long session before. And I think they're always pretty pretty good experiences because there's you get together with a group of people with similar backgrounds and interests. And I think a lot of people tend to have breakthroughs, but I, I have a hunch that your program in particular, people were having major breakthroughs and a lot more people were having major breakthroughs than what's typical there. So in my mind, the rippling effect would seem to be pretty big, you know, for those 28 people that go out and start doing their own thing, the effects of of uh, being with you for that week probably ripples out from them and, you know, and so on. So I hope you, you do some more. So I'd, I'd really love to to go back, although I'd feel bad taking someone else's spot that hasn't been, but uh, I would love to go back. Um, but, yeah, the experiences were great. The binaural beats were great. Having the uh, – the sessions where there was no real guidance you know that was kind of open-ended was a big deal and i even think a lot of people started taking off the headsets you know at different times to kind of test that out and had some success so i think having it so open-ended uh let people kind of travel down their own path to make their own discoveries so i think that was a a huge plus
2: well greg what you have to say how was your experience yeah, so
4: my experience was, uh, is also very good. I agree with uh, what Justin said. I had some pretty intense experiences. In fact, I would say that uh, some of the experiences I had fit in with, with the experience that I've had my whole life in such a way that it was really like some sort of culmination or turning point of a lot of things. And it was, it was really interesting because I think, I think what happened, uh, I think one of the things that was so helpful being there is that, uh, like Justin said, you know, that he was working on stuff for years and then he got there and then he made these breakthroughs. I think it was the ability to not only be, be there with you, but we with other people that have worked on similar things and exchange all these ideas. You really see like what you're doing in, in a context of all the things that are that are possible to do. And it just really, really, uh, you know, accelerates what you're willing to believe is possible very quickly, and uh, so it was It was really, really good, and since that time, in fact, my my questions I have for this session today are uh, kind of based around what's happened since I've been there, and it was a really big shake-up for me in in my development and, you know, has led to, you know, it's been since August, so four months of still ongoing <laughs> development pretty much gotten out of that shake-up.
2: <laughs> well, Oliver, does that uh, answer... Your question. Uh, anything you else? Anything else that you'd like to add to that?
1: Uh, no, it answered us absolutely, and I think it was great that we also had two participant voices here. Uh, But I have an add-on question to it um, and it relates to what you plan for the future because I already know that you have the cultural connection tour on your schedule for 2017. So that's my next question. It is, uh, you're planning to travel to several continents in 2017 doing workshops and the headline the cultural connection. Could you share with us your vision on how you want to structure these workshops and how they will be different from what you have done so far?
2: Um okay I don't I haven't done a lot of planning on exactly what I'm going to present and what I'm going to do in these workshops because it isn't yet for sure that they're going to take place. Um the way it's working is that Keith and Donna are putting this together, which means they're kind of the uh producer, if you will, producer and director of, of this which means they uh, you know, are the ones that are going to pay for it and they have to uh, decide whether or not it's worth their paying for it You know, early before they uh, put a whole lot of money into it. So what's going to happen is that if there's enough interest by, I think it's May, isn't that right, Donna, sometime in May, if there's enough interest going on, enough people say, yes, I definitely want to participate in this and I definitely will, will come to it if it happens. So, if there's enough, um, like, pre sales, if you will, by May of next year, then it's a go, and we're going to to do the whole thing. If if there's not, then we probably won't. We'll probably continue working on it until we're able to build up enough interest. So, I think it'll probably happen sometime. I'm not sure if it'll happen in 2017 or not. That just depends on how well we can try to get it organized. between now and, and May, yeah, it's going to be very expensive. Just the not only the flights, but the uh, you know the preparations, the, all of that is going to be a, a a lot of effort. And then, of course, you can imagine the number of hours of video that'll need to be processed afterwards because there'll be you know two or three cameras running all the time for the whole thing. So it's just going to be a very big uh, uh, a big vent to put on and it's going to take a fair amount of money to pay for all the things that have to be paid for in order to do it. And our goal is to come out of the end of it and break even. That's that's always the the goal when Don and Keith you know, work something is can we can we do this thing, get it done, and break even? And about two thirds of the time the answer to that has been no. They don't quite break even but they just suck that up and go on anyway, because it's it's certainly uh, it's not too bad. We usually get close to breaking even. So in this case, it's going to be a big enough uh, price tag that you don't want to just get close to breaking even. You want to actually be able to do that. So that's our goal. And if we can uh, uh, get enough sales to, to uh, think that we're going to be able to pay for the whole thing, then we will uh, we will go forward with it. Now. What started this off is that um, uh, Keith and Donna were contacted by a man who is a chieftain within the Maori tribe in New Zealand. The Maoris are the, are the indigenous people there. Uh, they're part uh, of, a, of the Polynesian, I guess, family of, of, uh, of races. Uh, In any case, they got in touch because this chieftain had read some of my big toe and came to the conclusion that it was just perfectly in line with their traditional religious um, ideas. The things that the Maori had passed down for, you know, I guess a thousand years or so uh, were very close and were closely. Paralleled by the My Big Toe Theory. So he wanted me to come there and talk to his people so that his people could kind of get a scientific, logical side of the religion that they've been practicing for thousands of years, see it from a different perspective that he thought would be very useful to them. And that's what started it all off. So he got in touch with Keith and Donna, and they said, "Well, let's see what we can do." And um, uh, he was very gracious with uh, perhaps having funds to help, you know, to help fund the uh, the trip as well. And then we decided that if we were going to go halfway around the world and get that close to Australia, we have a lot of people in Australia who have been asking us to come there for a long, long time, and it's just been too far, too expensive. So we haven't done it, but, well, if you're in New Zealand, then Australia is just a hop, you know, to the, you know, uh, a hop away. Just probably an hour or two riding airplanes, not that, that far. So then we started talking about uh, Australia. And then Keith and Donna said, well, if we're going to be in that neighborhood and do all of that, we can come back either route, because we're halfway around. So whether we come back the way we went, and don't do anything else, or whether we go around the world the other way, it's all about the same price because we're already halfway around the world. So let's come back the other way and make a few stops and, you know, uh, talk to some other people. And of course, the idea immediately came up of India. That would be a good place because they have a lot of deep spiritual traditions in India. And uh, we thought we might go to uh, Germany and also then to. Uh, Let's see, we're, we're going to go to New York, but there may be a few others in there that uh, stops that we could make along the way. I think a lot of this is, is still in motion as far as the planning goes. But uh, anyhow, that was the idea. So it's, at this point, it's just what I think is a really good idea, but it isn't yet solid or it hasn't been to the point that it's, yes, we're definitely going to do it. So that's kind of what's, what's happening. Well, what I would like to do in each of those places is, of course, do what I, I normally do, which is talk about the My Big Toe Theory. But I would like to be able to do that within a context of those individual uh, places. Of course, with the with the Maori, that uh, would be in the context of of some of their beliefs, which means I have to find out a little more about what their beliefs are, so that I can make that context. Uh, Within India, it would probably be within the context of of Buddhism and and how those two fit together. So I'm going to try to um, make some connections there between what's indigenous. Now, the indigenous uh, viewpoints of Australia are mostly uh, the same as, uh, you know, the UK and the US, and most English-speaking, because they are an English-speaking country, uh, for the most part, and uh, they would have pretty much the same traditions and viewpoints that uh, they had in the UK, which is where they originated from uh, to begin with. So I'm not sure about what difference I would do in Australia that that I could pick up on that would make it peculiar or particular uh, fit for Australia. But anyway, these other places I would hope to do a little something there. But basically it's my big toe um, as how it fits and connects to... Uh, other, uh, other isms, other uh, uh, philosophies, and that sort of stuff, relative to the places that I would be going. That's the idea. I haven't done any real work on what it is I'd say because it's not going to be until May that we know whether we're going or not. So then, from May, I'll have you know almost a year to to get it all together, and that's plenty of time. So that's I haven't done too much, but that's the big picture, and that's why it's happening. And it's kind of where we are with it at the, uh, at the present time. Seems like a really nice idea, but uh, we'll see. I'm looking forward to it. I hope it works because I'd like to see all these places. I'd like to go there, and I'd also like to uh, share you know, my views on philosophy and the nature of reality with these, with these people. And if possible, every place I go where the language is not English, I'm going to try very, very hard to get a real-time translation in those places so that when I'm done, I will now have a discussion of my big toe relative to that area uh, in their language, which then can be put up on a website you know, in their own language and uh, something that, that uh, then people who speak that language can go listen to. So that's really the big benefit. You know, if I had a, a you know, a day or two-day discussion in, uh, in German, say, um, you know, the translation, a real-time translation. Now, people speak German could all have a you know a two-day uh, workshop experience in their own language. That's going to enfranchise. That's going to be an on-ramp for another, I don't know, you know, two hundred million people who could now have access to these ideas. And if I do the same thing in Hindi. You know that may that would be another um, I don't know billion people that might have you know access to those, these ideas. So that's kind of the the real payoff I see in my book is that the various stops I will have uh, translations in different languages. So now New Zealand is primary English, except for the Maori, they have their own dialect, and of course Australia's primary English. So those uh, aren't actually going to produce another language, but they're so close, and there's a lot of people there who are interested. And it was the minority that invited us, so we're going to do those. But, but we may find some other stops that it would be good to uh, put some in. I do have some MBT uh, information in French now because I did a workshop in Marseille uh, this year, and that was a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That was. Four days, actually three whole days, and Thursday was just a, an evening, and that was that was translated real time, and it will be uh, all of it is going to be available on YouTube eventually. But again, all that video and you're talking about, uh, you know, seven hours a day for three days—that's 21 hours of video to to uh, process. That's a lot of video. Plus there's another, you know, three and three and a half hours or so from the Thursday. So we're talking like twenty-four hours of video process. So it's gonna take six months or more, you know, to get that done. So these things are gonna take a while, but when we get them out there, it's gonna enfranchise all those people that uh, that uh, now don't have access to it unless they speak and read English. So that's really what I'm I'm looking forward to, is is getting it in more languages, getting the ideas out there in more languages.
1: Okay, great. Uh, Just one add on, I think it would be very interesting if you could somehow bring in what you've uh, learned, for example, with the Maori, also in the German workshop, just as a short kind of summary, what you learned there, because that would be something I would find very interesting. The, the connections you found. And since, since I know that the workshop will take place before the one in Germany, that would also be possible.
2: Yes. Yes. I think that's a good idea to, to kind of accumulate as we go and uh, talk about the, the, those, those connections. Yeah. I'm going to find that real interesting too. I thought the whole, I was very pleased with the whole idea. I had no uh, idea that uh, my big toe and the uh, ancient uh, Maori uh, or Maori uh, traditions had any you know, overlap, much less being you know, a lot of overlap. So I was delighted just to point that out because the uh, Maori uh, are part of a much larger group of people, like I say, in Polynesia. To you know, um, uh, let's see, Fiji, Hawaii. You know a lot of South Pacific islands and a lot of people are also rooted in those same traditions. Now I'm sure the Maori have their own, and theirs have drifted different you know in different directions maybe than some of the others. but the basics are probably similar, so that's you know, interesting interesting ideas. I agree yes i would I would bring all that along and discuss it uh, as I go from place to place.
0: All right, Tom. Um, yes, you mentioned uh, having a translator on the ground, and I know Devendra in New Delhi is going to do a real-time translation in Hindi, so he will be invaluable. Um, yes. Our next question comes from William, and William, if you'd like to read your, your question, it's on quantum computing, artificial intelligence, and virtual reality.
5: Right sure. so I think I will add a big intro, so I'll probably summarize that one, but uh, so a few months ago, uh, a company called uh, D-Wave sold the first uh, commercial co- uh, quantum computer to NASA. So quantum computing is an uh, emerging technology that exploits you know some of the mechanics of quantum physics to solve a certain category of problems that would take many billions of years for today's fastest classical supercomputers to solve. So, yeah, so um, can you explain how quantum computers work from an MBT uh, standpoint? Uh, Second question is, what kind of impact do you think this technology will have on our society once it becomes more widespread? And uh, lastly, do you think quantum computers will play a role in giving birth to AI guy?
2: Okay. Uh, Well, quantum computing... Uh, try to keep it simple, uh, is different than regular, uh, binary computing in that you have quantum states don't have to be in, you know, this state or that state. They are states in probability, not necessarily physical states. And because of that, it can be a one, it can be a zero, and it can be some combination of one and zero. It can be somewhere in between. Okay, so that's just the nature. I know people will hear that and they'll say, "What does that mean?" It doesn't make any sense. But that's the nature of quantum mechanics. It's probabilistic. It's not. Uh, it's not uh, fixed like the material world that we think about. So you get ones and zeros and states in between. Well, when you have the states in between, that gives it a lot more flexibility. Let's say than just binary computing you have a lot more choices a lot more things a lot more information that can be uh, worked or processed with that so it processes a lot more information a lot more quickly it's got the perhaps we should say it this way it has the, the capacity to do that it has the ability to do that if we can really make quantum computers that work on a you know on a large scale scale and not just Kind of laboratory or special, see how they work. Kind of things, which is mainly what we're doing now. It's a we're in the infancy of that field. Um, as far as will they continue to evolve and and become like our desktops? You know that there will be a quantum computer sitting on your desk in you know 50 years. That is still problematical. They're in early phases. And though people are very hopeful that that will occur one day, that quantum computing will be something that will be available, uh, maybe at the beginning like the mainframes were. You know, people didn't have mainframes on their desk either. You know, you had to have a special computer center with special environmental controls and special cooling for the, you know, for the uh, the tubes and all the other things that were making it work. And they were, you know, they took up big rooms. Buildings were just uh, you know taken up with, with computer and you know the other thing about quantum things are of course they're also very small so they're not uh, you know they're not grand things but there are problems you have all of these states that are available you know besides just the binary one and zero and because you have this these large number of states you have to you have to make those states, let me see, we have to get those states, um, best word for that, the under control. You have to be able to to pick those states, you know, and hold those states enough that you can use those states. So quantum functions are very delicate. There's a lot of things that you can do that collapses a state when you really don't want to. And it's, a, it's not an easy thing to do. So it's not yet a sure thing that we're going to see quantum computing in a big scale. We're seeing it in a very small scale, like, you know, typically they call like the laboratory scale. And yes, one's been sold to NASA and they've been sold to other places. There's one or two companies that are making quantum computers, but they are just a, a shadow of what it is we hope for out of quantum computing. They're just a very first step. And I know we have this idea that technology can solve all problems, that you know, there will be a solution, and eventually you know we'll find it, and those quantum computers are going to be there, but there's, there's no law that says that has to be the case. We still don't know yet until we get there whether or not we will be able to stabilize these quantum states to the point that they will make useful computers like the kind of computer you have on your desktop. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Now, if they do, yes, indeed, they will be right out in the front of of uh, you know our ability to create an AI guy, as I describe him in the book. Because what you need to create an AI guy, and by an AI guy, we're talking about a, a you know a conscious computer, right? In order to create a conscious computer, you need to have Software and hardware that produces an entity, a computer, it can make choices on its own with free will. In other words, it can't be algor- algorithmic. You can't say that you know a whole lot of if thans, And if you have this, if this stimulus starts, then you must get that answer at the end. You know that's an algorithm. And every time you run through an algorithm, you'll get exactly the same result out exactly the same input in because algorithms don't do anything creative in the middle they just do what you tell them to do well that will never result in something being able to make free will choices so there must be enough uncertainty there must be enough complexity in the choice in the choices and enough uncertainty into which of those choices is a better choice and there needs to be criteria about what defines better in the better choice. Okay, now, for us, in our consciousness, what defines better is does it lower or raise entropy? If it lowers it, that's better. So that's then, is the, is the direction, that's the, the arrow that points toward our positive evolution, is decreasing entropy. So, these are some of the basic things you have to have to have consciousness. So, if you have a platform, any kind of platform, that can make free will choices, okay, choices that Or you might say fuzzy logic, when we talk about logic in a computer, where the computer goes through computations and can't really pinpoint which choice is better, so it has to guess, it has to make a decision, it has to say, okay, there's five things to do, I'll do this one. And then once it does that one, it has to learn from doing that one. Was that good? You know, was that Moved it toward its purpose or away from its purpose? Or was it neutral or could it tell? And when it does that choice, that choice then has to change the choice set that's available. All right, I've done this. Now that's going to put me in a different place. I'm in a different state now because I made this choice. Now I have a whole new set of choices. And now I have to make a choice there. And there's nothing that says for sure which one of those is better And I'm going to make this choice for these reasons and then I'm going to learn from it and see if I've got closer to my goal, my purpose, or not. See, that's how it goes. Now, we, we bodies here, we the physical body, we are such a platform in a computer that is our virtual reality. This body is a platform that can make free will decisions, make choices. We almost never have enough information to make a logical choice. We always have to guess. We have to make, uh, you know, do the best we can to figure out what is a good choice that leads us toward our goal, toward our purpose of lowering entropy, and then we make choices, and it either helps us or it doesn't. We make better choices. So it's a matter of learning through choice. We have this platform that uh, we call a human being, and uh, there are also other platforms called dogs and cats and horses and squirrels and raccoons who all make choices if you have a platform that makes choices then consciousness will come and populate will use that platform for experience to make those choices consciousness grows up okay so first you have a computer creates a an avatar that makes choices then you have consciousness wanting to experience that avatar's experiences, if you will, to experience that avatar's, uh, you know, experience life, and make those choices. And by making them, grow up, learn how to make better choices. So it's the consciousness that makes the choice, not the avatar. It's the player that makes the elf's choices, not the elf. And it's going to be some individuated unit of consciousness that's going to be making that computer's choices, not the hardware and the software and the computer. You see? So all you do when you uh, create a, a AI guy is you create a platform, a system that has the capacity to make free will choices. Now, the free will choices have to be interesting enough for a consciousness to want to, you know, populate that and make those choices. To use that avatar. So if your avatar is is making choices, but on the level of a bumblebee, well, you're not going to have a big rush to try to get into that game where you can have a you know an avatar that has the choices of a bumblebee because there's not just that much to learn there. The choices aren't varied. They're not rich enough. They don't have enough consequences. It's just not a, a you know enough to interest. Uh, but you know, a very small or a very limited consciousness. Now, if you have a very limited IUOC, a very limited consciousness, maybe a bumblebee is just right. But for what we, what we think of AI guy, we think of something more or less like ourselves. And for that, the choices have to be robust and meaningful, significant. You know, they need to have, they need to focus around choices that can move, that consciousness toward its goal of lowering entropy. So now that's the thing. We don't build consciousness in a computer. We create a platform that consciousness will use as an avatar. That means that when you have that AI guy, then consciousness, some conscious entity is using that a computer as a as a platform as a as an avatar. Now you unplug the computer. What happens to the the consciousness? Well, it's the same thing. You know, you you know, you unplug the elf. Yeah, you know, your elf goes away, falls in a hole or something, gets eaten by a big fish. Well, the consciousness, you the player, aren't affected. You just go on. Well, that's the way this will be. So does that mean that uh, conscious computers have souls? Well, of course, if you want to call that consciousness of soul, you know, so that's how you have to look at it. It's not that there's actually a consciousness living inside the computer anymore. There is a consciousness living inside our body. Consciousness is in a different reality frame and it uh, can't be in the same reality frame as the as the virtual reality that it creates. It has to be in a, a separate reality frame. So yes, if we get um, these quantum computers, Now we have the computing capacity and the computing speed to do what are typically very slow processes, which is the fuzzy logic, the uh, neural networks. These are not fast processes. And they need to be done very, very quickly. Uh, Otherwise, the game, the game, the, the set of choices, are in slow motion if they can't be computed quickly. And then that's kind of boring as an avatar. So to make it the kind of avatar that a people like consciousness wants to use as, a, as an avatar to make you know to make that sort of a platform then we need more powerful, more creative, faster computers. And certainly the quantum computer would give us that if quantum computers turn out to be something more than a laboratory uh uh, you know, fascination. If they actually turn out to be something that ex- that that works in a general way, like silicon did, then uh, yes, absolutely, we will get there uh, much more quickly because that's the kind of power you need to to emulate that. Now we have some groups at universities have already created conscious computers in the sense that they're conscious, like a bumblebee, or maybe like a you know, maybe even like a dog, or something. They have computers that have passed the Turing test. That's a test for whether or not uh, you know, a computer is making its own decisions. And what that test amounts to is clever people sit down and ask it questions, and if they can't tell whether or not they're talking to a human being or a computer, then the computer is considered to be you know, non just algorithmic. It's it's uh, it passes the Turing test, and that's what you call consciousness then, rather than just something that's computing. And we've had that test now, just in the last year, I think that test was passed. And there's other university computers besides that one that have computers that will come up with their own answers to their own questions. They're not just following algorithms. But these are all done at rather small levels of consciousness. They're not emulating human beings. They're emulating fish consciousness or something on that level. You know, it's, it's not a, a human level yet. So that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but I'm hopeful that quantum computing might turn out to be you know, as good as, as the promise and the potential. But I would say... We're way in advance of being able to make that decision yet. It may not turn out to be anything useful at all. It may turn out to be a a good idea that we weren't able to harness because we couldn't keep those states stable long enough to use them in a long-term computing problem. But we don't know yet.